Hey there, Mike Stelzner coming to you with a fascinating update you might not be familiar with. Did you know that Social Media Examiner can deliver all the marketing, training, news, and trends, insights that you need into your inbox three days a week when you sign up for our newsletter and it's completely free? Simply visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates and take your marketing to the next level. Welcome to the Crypto Business Podcast, helping you navigate the frontier of crypto. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Crypto Business Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for innovative thinkers who want to know what works in the world of Web 3.0. Today, I'm going to be joined by Roger Bryant. And we're going to explore how to develop a long-term vision for your NFT project. I think you're going to find this absolutely fascinating. So be sure to buckle up and enjoy this week's episode. And by the way, I'm at Stelzner on Instagram. And if you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show so you don't miss any of our future content. And now for this week's interview with Roger Bryan. Helping you to simplify your crypto journey. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Roger Bryan. If you don't know who Roger is, he's a Web3 investor and founder of Results.io, an agency that specializes in helping Web3 companies launch successful projects. He's also founder of Block Capital, a blockchain fund, and he's host of the weekly Coffee with the Nerd live show. Roger, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. It was great to meet with you in person at NFTLA. You're involved with a lot of fun projects, and I'm super excited today to explore how to establish a long-term vision with NFT projects. I think that so many people that launch NFTs are not thinking long-term, and I can't wait to dig a little deeper with you today. But before we go there, I would love to hear your story. How did you get into NFTs and crypto? Start wherever you want to start. Yeah, the, the crypto side is always a fun story. I bought my first Bitcoin in 2013. I was at a mastermind in St. Martin's with a couple marketing buddies, and we decided we were going to go out on a catamaran with a couple of local friends. Turned out to be an anarchist, a few members of Anonymous, and the anarchist's wife, I remember, she was beautiful. She was an attorney, but she didn't like to wear clothes, which made my girlfriend at the time a little uncomfortable. And I handed him $80 in cash and got my first Bitcoin that day. I also proposed to my wife that day and didn't realize that it was April 1st. So there's a lot of memorable events to that day. You buy your first Bitcoin and propose to your wife on April 1st with an anarchist and a naked woman running around. You tend not to forget about how you came into the industry. Did you save that coin or did you sell it? Because 80 bucks for a Bitcoin, wow. Oh, I'll have that one forever. That's like the one that I pretend doesn't even exist. It's just memorable at this point. I then was like many people that came in relatively early. I bought a bunch in the $120 range and then sold it all at $1,500 and thought that I was a genius for 10Xing my money. Little did we know what would happen. Fast forwarding just a few years later, I got really heavy back into the crypto space in 2017. We launched a project called Totally Crypto in the Digital Currency Index. We had one of the largest crypto communities in 2017 with 45,000 people in our Facebook group. 
And we had about 1,200 monthly subscribers to our newsletter at the time. That led me to becoming the head of crypto at a financial firm called Equity Trust, which is a $27 billion financial services company. My job was to train their team and sales reps on how to sell cryptocurrency as an investment. And that was back in 2017, 18, 19. And then NFTs, it's really interesting. One of my buddies is a, a pretty well-known digital artist. And at the beginning of 2021, I tried working with him to get his collection online right after people sold his for, what, $69 million. And if you've ever worked with artists in the business side of things, you'll, you'll know that it's like herding cats. So that didn't necessarily work out, but it brought me into the market and I started buying a few things here, there, and then went really heavy in August and started advising projects. I'm the largest holder of many popular projects. And since then it's grown into, I think what we're going to talk about a lot today on this call. Well, and why don't you go ahead and explain the project that connected us together as well, just because, you know, I ended up investing Full disclosure, I ended up investing in, I think it was called the whale sharks and I think it's changed a little bit, but why don't you just tell a little bit of that story as well? Yeah. Awesome. So we decided at the end of last year, as I was working in a lot of different projects, we saw a common thread throughout all of the communities of a need that individuals had that wasn't being met. A lot of groups call it alpha. I personally believe as an investor, they're using the term incorrectly, but it was bringing together those that were looking to not just trade NFTs and make a quick buck, because you can, there's nothing wrong with that. And don't get me wrong, we do that too. But how to create a long-term wealth strategy in Web3. So grabbing in the metaverse, play to earn, DeFi, NFTs. So we brought together a couple hundred individuals and we launched a project called The Whale Sharks. It's thewhalesharks.com. And it's an NFT collection that serves as a pass to our ecosystem and to the WhaleMaker DAO, which has had an amazing run over the last 90 days for its investors and is designed to be more like an index fund of assets across the, the metaverse and Web3. And we've got a great community of individuals with a shared vision. And that vision is to build wealth over the long term and how to make strategic investments and how to pick the right projects to put our capital into. And what are you focused on predominantly today? What, like, tell us a little bit about what results.io really does, if you don't mind. So, results.io was born out of my partnership with a VC fund out of Taipei. I'm an LP at a company called IVC Internet Ventures Crypto, which is an offshoot of Headline Asia, which is a multi billion dollar fund. We just closed our first $70 million Web3 round at the beginning of the year. We've invested in, I don't even know how many projects now. We have our monthly meeting coming up on the 18th. It'll be good to get caught up because it's just been nonstop picking up allocations in some of the biggest projects on market. And in that relationship, we'd participate in the phone calls with the investors for pitches and also reviewing, doing the quarterly review of the investments that we made. And I'd often ask questions like, have you thought about doing this from a marketing perspective? Have you thought about doing this? Finally, the head of IBC called me up and he's like, where, where are you coming up with all this? And I told him, I built and sold two marketing agencies. One of them made Inc. Magazine's fastest growing company three years in a row. I've built and sold a publishing company and an e-commerce business. He's like, all right, we're starting a marketing company. Here's your first set of clients and here's the goal. I'm like, okay. 
So that's really how results.io came about. And as of 2018, I was semi-retired and I would just sit around and read books and coach the few businesses that we own. And I was living an amazing life. Now I actually have to work again, but it's so much fun. And you've met some of the people we're working with. These people are just amazing human beings. We get to work on a lot of mission-driven projects. And results.io has quickly become one of the top Web3 marketing agencies on the planet. Do you want to mention the one that we experienced just a few days ago? Oh, yeah. So Michael had a chance to come and meet the team from Metacrafters in Proof of Learn, which is founded by Sheila Marcello, who was the founder of Care.com that she sold a couple of years ago for half a billion dollars. She's on a mission to onboard Web2 developers into the Web3 ecosystem. So that's creating the blockchain developers, the game developers for the metaverse, the metaverse developers. She has a mission of onboarding 10,000 new developers in the next 12 months. And it's such an amazing project. It has all of the largest investors in the Web3 market and in traditional markets. She's built an amazing team of some of the smartest people I've ever met. And Michael, you'll have to admit, they threw one heck of a party in LA. Yeah, it was pretty snazzy. Never been to anything like that. All right, folks. Well, you've got a sense of Roger's background. Now I want to ask you, Roger, as a guy who has invested in a lot of NFT projects and you know, and we're really zooming in on NFTs today because I feel like that's that's what my audience can really wrap their head around as like small business creators, entrepreneurs, marketers. Why do these projects fail? What do you feel like is lacking? Because it seems like NFT projects are propping up all the time and most of them are not successful. So what are some of the big mistakes that you see happening with these projects? Yeah, and I'm going to pull a number from Gary V. He has publicly said numerous times that 98% of NFT projects will fail. I mean, it's absolutely correct. There's so many reasons that they fail. So it's kind of like start at the top and come down a little bit. And the very first one is really lack of vision or originality. We see these really successful projects like the CryptoPunks, which their right to fame is that they were one of the first. And then you see the Board Ape Yacht Club, which is selling for $350,000 for one NFT. And you could have bought it for $180 almost exactly a year ago. And we think that it's just a matter of putting a project out And that the world is going to embrace it. And the next thing you know, you're going to become a cultural phenomenon on the cover of Rolling Stone with $26 million auctions at Sotheby's. Unfortunately, that's not the case. We look at the most successful and we try to model them, often not realizing that when they become a phenomenon, they sort of start to break the rules that the rest of us need to follow. So, just like any product, you really need to solve some type of problem. You can solve an emotional need problem by developing an amazing community. You can solve a nostalgic seeking individual's psychological need to re-embrace their youth. For example, we're working on the Power Rangers NFT drop. A lot of the anime series from the 80s and 90s are becoming really popular in the NFT space. But even with that, it's still not enough to be successful. So Solving a problem really means that you've got to get creative in the market. You've got to have a hook. And as marketers, we understand that. 
But a lot of times as project creators, you get a bunch of guys or gals sitting around, they come up with an idea, they quickly put something together, they put it out and they want to sell 10,000 NFTs and then they stall at 160. And they're like, what did we do wrong? We've got this amazing artwork. We've got this amazing vision of all these things that we're going to do. The reality is, is people, they want to see stuff now. So even if you do manage to create an original idea, what are you showing the world that you have today? The investors and the participants in this ecosystem are much smarter in 2022 than they were in 2017 during the ICO craze when you could basically sell anything if you could write a good white paper. Today, the audience wants to see something tangible, something realistic, something that they can be involved in. Michael, you saw all kinds of real-world parties at NFTLA. Some of them were absolutely amazing, and it's delivering that in-real-life value to the holders of a certain project. It's a great start. So, Michael, I mean, I've got like a, a bullet point list. Do you want me to just jump into some of the uh, other macro reasons projects fail? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So let's put our marketer hat on. And we're going to wear three different hats for this conversation. As a marketer, we understand that in order to have a successful product, we must market it. Often projects fail to market. They fail to build their communities. Those communities in this space are typically on Discord, Telegram, and Twitter. If you don't reach critical mass in those elements, it's not likely that you'll have a successful project. For example, we had an NFT project pitch us maybe three weeks ago, and they have 10,000 NFTs that they want to sell. It's amazing artwork. They've got an awesome vision for what they want to do. They've got like 6,000 people in their community. And when you do the math, there's no way to create demand after the drop because everybody could probably mint two but then there's no one left that knows about the project that will then want to be involved in it. So the marketing aspect is about building your community and getting it oversubscribed to whatever it is that you want to do. So if you're going to have 10,000 NFTs drop, you want 50,000 people in your community that are actively engaged in some way or another. That is not an easy task. You've got to be a good marketer. You've got to be a good networker. You've got to go out. You've got to build the relationships and do what we call AMAs or ask me anythings with other communities. So one of the other reasons that projects fail is if they don't have a vision and they don't have a product, they tend to fail. If they don't have good marketing, they tend to fail. After marketing, it really comes down to who are you initially engaging with? And this kind of is the collector investor hat. When I sit down at a dinner with some of the larger players in the uh, NFT space, uh, most of them are part of a syndicate. So they're part of a group of individuals that once one of them buys in, everybody buys in. Real quick on the syndicate thing. Is this a formal word in the NFT collector space or is this just a word you mean like they're in a small group of buddies who share whitelist projects with each other? Do you understand what I'm asking? No, it, it, is, it is a formal word. So they're called three different things. They're called alpha groups. They're called syndicates, and some of them even call themselves mafias. Okay. Um, I was trying to avoid that word because it makes it sound a little dirty. There are projects that we have worked with that have been anti-whales. Whales are the larger players in the crypto or NFT space. So they design their projects to not work well with these syndicates or these whales, and that rarely works to their advantage. 
because they don't have the people that come in and buy 10 to 20% of the supply and then share with their friends that they're involved in the project. And we're seeing this more and more. I think we're going to talk a little bit about what makes them work. And right now we're talking about what doesn't work, but there's a project that I'm very heavily invested in that seemed to embrace this strategy, but then quickly became publicly anti-whale, anti-syndicate, and they've struggled because of that. There is a community that you need to embrace. And if you don't, your project will struggle. And very few creators realize that because they're not taking the time to do their marketing, do their networking, do their research, and to look at who the biggest holders are in similar projects and approaching them about becoming involved in theirs. Most of them want to, and it's all on the blockchain. It's not hard to figure out who these people are, but no one spends the time doing it. I have a question. Obviously right now there's, I think I read there's only about 16 million people that invest on OpenSea, one six million, which isn't a huge number, right? But do you feel like with the onboarding of NFT buyers and as the masses over the next 12 months start coming, that these syndicates are going to be less important? Do you understand where I'm going with this? Because as people who have large communities outside of the NFT world on the socials, for example, as they begin embracing NFTs, for example, imagine Mr. Beast, right? One of the largest YouTubers in the world he could bring literally millions of people into this space if he wanted to. Do you feel like that right now it's syndicates and alpha groups and that eventually that's going to be less important? Or do you feel like these people are still going to be important because they're the ones that can move the needle on the floor price of a lot of these projects? Yeah, I think they're always going to be important. I mean, you can go into the professional sphere of public equities and they're called market makers. They're systematized machines for producing a specific outcome or results to a listing, whether that be a publicly traded company, um, the introduction of a new cryptocurrency, an NFT drop, they are a vital part of the ecosystem. And when you talk about someone like Mr. Beast, you start to do that equation again, where if you want to sell 10,000, you need 50,000 active members. If you've got a million active members in your community and you want to sell 10,000, you're probably going to be a huge success out of the gate. So that's initially. Right. But then you get into the longer term reasons that projects fail. And that is typically around the team, not understanding what team members they need in order to be successful. Because you can take an artist, a developer, and a marketer, put them together, bring a product to market, sell it out. But then they're all looking at each other. Okay, the artist is done with his art. The developer is done with the blockchain side. Okay, marketer, go, go make this work. And the marketer's sitting there looking at, well, what do I sell next? What are we doing next? Are we doing events? Are we going to do staking? Are we going to do a game? Like, what do you want me to do? And the, everybody looks at each other and like, well, we don't really have a leader here. Who's the person that understands business? Who's the person that understands finance? And many, many teams lack that. And many people that get involved in these NFT projects fail to look for that before they get involved. They don't go into the Discord. They don't see what team members are available and look at what their experience might be after the sale. And that's a real problem that that shiny object, that short-term thinking, that seeking alpha today in the NFT space based on hearing about people that minted something for 0.08 Ethereum, so what, 250 bucks? And then they turn around and sell it instantly for $380,000. And it happens. It does. But that's the 0.00001% of the participants in the community. 
So for the rest of us that aren't hitting those huge home runs out of the gate, we continue to seek them. We hope, we wait. But if you're going to be looking at the project long-term, you've got to ask yourself, who is the leader and what is their experience in this type of sphere that leads you to believe that this project can be successful post-mint? And then the last one with that on the long-term vision is money management. So many of these projects pull in massive amounts of money. A big trend that I saw at NFTLA, I was meeting a lot of project creators that have millions of dollars sitting in a DAO for their project to use, and they have no idea what to do with any of the money. They're like, we can throw parties, we can build this, we can build that. And you look at it and you're like, hey, you've got $2 million. That's like you raised a series A without having to give any equity away in your business. Like you need to think about how you're going to deploy that as a run rate and how it's going to continue to build community and community value in order to make the project successful over the long term. You know, the other thing that I think that a lot of projects don't do well is communication because the truth of the matter is that unless you're actually active in Discord or you have notifications on on Twitter, it's almost impossible to keep up with what's happening in a lot of these projects. And if you're invested in multiple projects, I would imagine this is part of where projects fall apart is people get excited during the minting process and then they forget about the project because there's no easy way to communicate. Don't you agree that's a big part of the problem as well? Oh, I, I agree 100%. We have a full-time employee whose only job is to manage my NFT collection so that I can stay up to date on things. Now, not everybody can do that. My recommendation to people that are new in the NFT space or are looking long-term, if you're not a professional investor and this isn't part of your overall portfolio, don't get involved in more than five projects. You'll never be able to keep up. And it's often the things that you miss, which are the ones that could have made you money. Whether it's a secondary drop, it's a partnership, it is a token launch, it is a staking mechanism. The earlier that you adopt the things that your projects are doing, the more profitable they are. And if you start missing them, then you really are limiting your value inside of those collections. Okay, so let's talk about what successful long-term projects are doing. We've talked about kind of, you can flip some of the stuff we talked about on its head, but let's talk about like DAOs and token issues and stuff like that, because that's stuff that I think a lot of people maybe haven't considered. Yeah. And this is, I'm going to talk about it from my perspective as an investor, working for a fund, managing a fund. And then I'm going to apply that to the general public because it's no different that you have the same available data and can ask the same questions. Our first question is always, who are your backers? So typically, like at results.io, we do not have a single client on our roster of 22 clients right now that is not VC-backed. And the reason for that isn't just the credibility that comes with it, but it's letting us know that the project has been through due diligence. Someone's looked at their legal documents. The team is doxxed, meaning that everyone knows who they actually are in real life. Now, hold on a second. On this point, so many of these big projects like Lazy Lions, for example, and Bored Apes, and even Aziki, you know, they they haven't doxxed their founders yet. They've been successful. So there's a lot of people that think I can get away with working with a pseudonym. But are you saying that this is important now? Like people want to know who the heck the founders are and that's, that doesn't really work anymore? Yeah. And the Bored Apes founders are now doxxed. They didn't choose to do it. Somebody doxxed them. Right. Or at least that's the way that it appears to the market. But with them doing the ape token drop and working with Horizon Labs on that and the KYC that needed to be done in order to get those allocations, I don't think it was an accident that they were doxxed. 
when you look back to 2021, it was cool to not be doxxed. When you look at 2022 and you look at long-term investors, the players that really are looking to build wealth in the space, they're, they're not going to go for that anymore. Got it. Uh, that doesn't mean that you're not going to see the 1% of projects that still manage to pull it off. But if 98% of projects are failing, then you have to understand that like that 1% is super rare. And it's typically because they partnered with a syndicate with a group of guilds or a market maker to make them a success out of the gate. And then that they hit the nail on the head with all of the other things, amazing art, having an avatar that people can relate to, meaning that like monkey pictures are fine. They're funny. I invested heavily in a vampire project. It never really caught on, even though it's got an amazing team. And we started to ask ourselves, like, what did we do wrong on this project? They hit the nail on the head with so many of the elements we look for. And it's just that the artwork might not resonate. And they've got one of the, the artists that did that project is actually the same artist that did the Board Ape Shot Club. So you'd think that that correlation would lead to more success, but it didn't. So that art avatar element is an important consideration as well, so that you can hit people emotionally and psychologically that they want to represent or flex their NFTs as their profile pictures on social media in order to create expansion. But when we go back to the doc side, artists can get away with it. But I mean, these projects are raising $5 million, $10 million, $20 million dollars. I would want to know that someone raising that type of money, what their background is, because if they have never run a business, they've never really even been part of a successful business, there's a high probability that that money is not going to go towards growing the project and that they have no idea what to do with the money. And that usually leads to problems. Cool. What else are important long-term things? I also want to see a public deck, even with NFT projects. Art is really cool. Utility meaning that like I can get access to an alpha group. I can get access to in real life events. I can get merch drops or even token drops. Excuse me, that's cool. But I want to see a deck. I want to see a traditional format deck. In fact, this hat that I'm wearing, this is not one of our clients. I do own an NFT in it called OnChain Monkey. What I loved about this is one of the founders, they threw a big party in LA. They had a gallery display. It was amazing. They really spoiled everybody there. But then later in the hotel, the next day, I'm wearing the hat and she comes up to me. She's like, you got five minutes. She opens up her laptop and she starts going through the deck of everything that they've got coming, all the partnerships, all of the people that are owners. And to me, I was like, holy S, if every project was doing this, they would be so much more successful than the ones that just think that they're going to sell a bunch of artwork. Let me back up for a second. Let's talk about DAOs and let's talk about issuance of tokens because not everybody understands this and it does add complexity to the project, right? If you're going to have a DAO and you're going to issue tokens somehow, can you explain why these things are good for the long term for projects and maybe what we need to know about them? Yeah. When done right, they can be the primary value prop of a project. And I emphasize when done right, because they're typically done wrong. A DAO stands for a decentralized autonomous organization without getting too in the weeds from a securities perspective, it is an instrument that currently lives outside of regulatory bodies for raising money that can then be invested into other activities. And when I say that it lives outside, the decentralized aspect of it is, is that people that own the tokens inside of this DAO vote on everything that the DAO does with that money. 
So it lacks central management, which is a key part of what's called the Howey test for distinguishing what's a security and what's not. That's a very complicated explanation. Let's well, and that's exactly why Bored Apes issued a DAO for their ape token, right? So they didn't have to have a, it be a security, right? Yeah, and they hired the best. The team at Horizon Labs, which is part of the digital currency group, are some of the best in the legal and technical side of this. They're the company that people go to when they're trying to do things at scale. I'm not an investor in that company, although if I ever got the opportunity to, I would be. Note, I'll send them this video so they can see me promoting them to hopefully get in on whenever they raise. But yeah, doing that decentralized aspect allows you to live outside. I always want to be careful how I word this. It is outside of the current regulatory landscape, often, especially in the U.S., which nobody wants to be based in the U.S. because of a lot of this. The federal government tends to try to interpret laws that were written in 1934 and apply them to the things that we're doing today. That's both an advantage and a disadvantage. In this case, someone in 2018 figured out, hey, technically, if we're all voting on what we do with the money, it's not a security. We're going to do this at scale. And then it became the DAO. We have a DAO. I invest in a lot of DAOs. It gives us more flexibility in the things that we're going to do without having to fill out a bunch of paperwork and worrying about regulatory filings and things like that, that just slow down uh, bootstrapping projects. If somebody who has an NFT project adds a DAO to it, and we've, we've interviewed people and talked about DAOs on this show before, generally speaking, is it based on the number of NFTs that you hold that will allow you to have votes? Is that generally how it works? Typically, in order to be done correctly, there has to be a token allocation. So let's say that there's 10,000 NFTs and that every NFT gets airdropped 100 tokens. And then if you owned 10 of them, you would now have 1,000 tokens. So you would have a larger vote in the DAO's say of what's going to be done with the money that was put in there. When you think about a community-driven DAO that is voted upon with NFTs, Typically, you walk a fine line there because often, and I see this happening right now, projects will take part of the money that they earn from their drop or their royalties, they'll put it into a DAO and they'll call it the community DAO. And then people will vote based on NFT ownerships. But often, the project holders will decide whether or not to implement that or whether or not it's realistic. There's a balancing act there. There's no correlation of value between the DAO and the end user. And then the vote is not necessarily decentralized so that the project gets to make the ultimate decision. And I don't, there should be a different name for those because they're not a decentralized autonomous organization. And you can do that. But if it's driven by tokens, a correlation between the assets in the DAO and the actual tokens there cannot be a centralized controlling organization that decides whether or not something is legitimate enough to do. Let's talk about tokenization a little bit, because obviously NFT has the word token in it. And when we think of token in this particular case, and tell me if I've got this right, I hold an NFT, I might be earning tokens over time, depending on how long I hold the NFT or depending on if I stake the NFT, like explain how that works, because a lot of my audience doesn't necessarily understand that. Yeah, and there's a lot of different go-to-market strategies here. So I don't think when the Board Ape Yacht Club launched that they had envisioned uh, how big they would become, what their market cap would be, or how much revenue would be generated from that. 
enough revenue that they can go out and buy the intellectual property rights to CryptoPunks and then just give them to all of the owners who didn't have them. Then they see all this money and they want to put it at play. So they airdropped or allowed the owners to claim tokens that had financial value. And it was a windfall. So many NFT holders that had an NFT worth a quarter million dollars were given $170,000 in tokens. That probably was a once in a lifetime type thing. And those tokens are now a central part of their economy. They'll be used to buy land in their metaverse. They'll be used as part of their game. They're used for buying merchandise. They've got a billion dollar plus market cap now. Well, I'm not going to look it up, but I, I hate quoting numbers if I'm not exactly sure what their market cap is. It's big. It's big. Yeah. And then you go into smaller projects and a lot of times they issue what's called a utility token. So projects will issue this token and then you can use it inside of their ecosystem. Some popular projects do it so that if you want to get alpha, meaning that they've partnered with a project for whitelist or allow list, you can buy those access rights for their token. You can use them to buy tickets to in real life events. Remember, these tokens are all free. They're just given to you. Whether they're going to be created for financial value and go through that regulatory realm of KYC, or if they're going to be giving, giving them to you as a promise of utility, there is some inherent consideration of the individual that those tokens will be worth something later, which is why they go through the process of earning them or claiming them. So even in the project that we're involved in together, the whale sharks, you can stake your whale shark into what's called an alpha node, and it will pay you tokens every month. Those tokens represent the assets in our DAO. So although those tokens sold at 0.008 cents, they're now worth about four and a half cents. So if you bought them, you've already seen a five or six X return on your investment. And if you're staking them, you're building long-term wealth based on the allocation that we've put into our staking mechanism. A question that I often ask founders when they mention a token in their project is I ask them, who is it responsible for your monetary policy? And it's almost always a deer in the headlights uh, response. Because when you issue a token, you do become responsible for that token success the same way a government is responsible for the currency of their country, their economy. The definition of monetary policy exemplifies the need to be able to expand and contract based on market conditions. And no one in this space understands that. Let me take that back. I don't want to say no one. There have been a few projects that I've asked that question. And the answer that they've given me has just blown my mind. And that's how I know they've got a good project. They've got a good team. They understand monetary policy. They have vision. They have money. They're VC backed. Like this is probably going to be a home run. This is a unicorn. And they're out there. If you're talking to enough projects, if you date enough of the wrong people, you tend to find the right one. If you sit at home and date no one, you end up lonely. So many of my listeners are obviously new to NFTs in general, right? And we're talking pretty advanced here let's say that they've hired the Solidity developers and the, the designers and they've maybe got their own financial backing more than enough so they don't need to go out to a venture capitalist firm, but they don't understand the token side of things, the issuance of tokens. Are there entities that specialize in helping them? Are there agencies? Are there yet service providers that do the tokenomic side of it? Because that's obviously complex, more complex than the actual NFT launch. It is, and it's not inexpensive to do that side correctly. 
Like if you want to go to the Horizon Labs route, you're probably going to be paying seven figures. You can go with like Republic, who's very well known for a fraction of that price. And again, these numbers aren't exact. They're just deals that I've known that we've participated in and they each take their payment in different ways. Some want an allocation, some want to just get paid up front. But there are professional firms that have been around for quite a long time. Uh, Republic's been around probably 2017, 18, if not longer. And they can help you figure all that out. There's probably a million companies with the name Republic. Is is there more to the name than actually Republic for people who want to do a little research? I think it might be. Let's just pull it up real quick. Yeah, that would be really helpful because, you know, as you're pulling it up, I'm an investor in a number of projects and some of them do have tokens and I just don't even understand it because it's not clear to me. But now that I'm hearing this, did you find the name, by the way? Yeah, it's Republic.com. Oh, really? It's literally that simple. Okay, cool. Republic.com. And they specialize in token issuance, basically? Yes. With NFT communities or non-NFT communities? Yeah, they will consult with you on your tokenomics and they may connect you with different marketplaces for um, your listing or your fundraising. Depending on the scale of your project, you can also go to someone like Start Engine, which is owned by Prime Trust, which is one of the biggest backers financially of the fundraising side in this ecosystem. Start Engine, I've worked with them on numerous projects. They're a great team and they've really come to scale in the last few years. So you can technically issue tokens without an NFT, right? I mean, like these companies, I would imagine, would allow you to issue your very own token, you know, and it makes me think because you've got these social token concepts, which, you know, you've got rally and roll, which kind of act as middlemen. I would imagine if you have the funds, you could go direct and start your own tokens with some of these entities. Is that correct? Well, to be honest, you could go and mint your own tokens for like 250 bucks. You could have a billion tokens for $250 and have them in your wallet and can send them to anyone that you want. It's not, in fact, you can just Google how to do it. I'm not going to give websites because many of them are shady right? and I don't want to be responsible. But if you Google how to launch a token on Ethereum or how to launch a token on Polygon, there are literally websites where you connect your wallet, give it a token name, tell how many you want, click a button and it mints them and puts them in your wallet. So creating them is not the hard part. A deriving value or creating value around them is much more complicated. What's your sense of NFT airdrops as part of a long-term strategy? Because for example, I bought some of the Walking Dead and they are, part of their plan is they're going to do five different airdrops over the period of a year. And you know that Walking Dead obviously did airdrops. So is this an important part of a long-term strategy for an NFT project as well? It definitely helps. The bigger the project is, the bigger the brand that it has, the larger the community, the more demand there is for, let's call it the Genesis asset, which is typically the first issue. They call it a Gen 1 or a Genesis. And then whether it's airdrops or claims, that's something that keeps the community engaged. It rewards them. Technically, from a tax perspective, it's a dividend and that you have to pay your taxes on them when you get them that they create a longer term relationship. A lot of the better projects that we work with are going to continue doing that. And a lot of them do it to expand their ecosystem. So Gen 1 could be male, Gen 2 could be female. They could drop companions. Psychedelics Anonymous has done a great job of dropping what are called components so that you start to build out your avatar and its ecosystem. Some of them have dropped clothing so you can dress your NFT. It, it, it's all correlated to the lore or the vision of the project, how these additional assets come into play and how you can benefit from them, either from a utility perspective or, or financial perspective. You mentioned that an airdrop is like a dividend, but 
isn't it true that if you don't actually, I mean, I get stuff airdropped into my wallet all the time and sometimes I don't even know who it's from. I would imagine it's only a dividend the moment you sell it. Isn't that correct? Oh, that's a complicated area because if you think about like from a securities perspective, if you receive a dividend on a security, it's taxable. Right. So technically a dividend on an NFT would be taxable at some market rate, even if you don't sell it. Now, this is a gray area. I don't know anyone that's actually paying their taxes on an airdropped NFT until they sell them. But technically, eventually, it's going to come back and places like OpenSea and stuff may end up having to issue us W9s or 1099s, whichever it's going to be. And then airdrops could do that. One thing I would recommend from a security perspective, if you have been airdropped an NFT into your wallet and you don't know what it is, you never want to interact with it on chain. You can get hacked through those airdropped NFTs. Most of us have in our hidden wallet on OpenSea, we just move them into the hidden wallet and we pretend like they don't exist. Because if you go to connect to, say, a website that says that you can sell it, next thing you know, your entire wallet's drained. But receiving an airdropped NFT that is legitimately spam and it is unhidden, hiding it is not an action that's going to be hurt us, right? Because I've gotten a bunch of airdrops that were spam and I've just hid them. You know what I mean? That's not going to hurt me at all if I do that, right? No, that's not going to hurt you at all. It would be interacting with it on chain that creates the risk potential. Yeah. So you're really kind of stuck with them and no one's really found a solution to that yet. Right. So you just put them in that hidden folder. I've probably got hundreds of them in my primary wallet at this point. And every time I log in, there's a couple more. You think about it from a marketing perspective, it's a reasonably intelligent go-to-market strategy. If you want to target a specific market, you can drop an NFT with a marketing message. And I'm not recommending this. It's actually frowned upon, but you can drop a marketing message on there and say, hey, you own this, you should own this. And it gets people's attention. Unfortunately, it's negative attention at this point. When you said interact on chain, I think you really mean going to their website and connecting your wallet to the uh, issuing thing. Is that what you meant by that? Or did you mean something different? Yeah, a lot of times you'll click on them and it'll say in the description that like, hey, you can take it over here and stake it or trade it or sell it. And people get excited. They're like, hey, I got this free NFT and here's a link. I can go sell it now for 300 bucks. They're like, oh, I want to go do that. And the second they do that, they're compromised and everything's gone. Roger, this last question is a, is kind of a big question, but I want to know where you think everything is going. You know, like obviously you've been involved in this for a very, very long time, specifically when it comes to NFT projects, put your visionary hat on metaphorically and think into the future, like three to five years from now, where do you see this all heading? Ooh, that is a big question. So there are models that predict trends and Ray Dalio is very, very good at this. So in 2017, even in July, I published an article that said that the ICO and crypto craze that was going on at the time was unsustainable and that we were going to have to lose 80 to 90% of our market value in order to find a foundation to stabilize and regrow from. Lo and behold, that happened in 2018. Almost to the T, I was exactly right. At the end of last year, 2021, I saw it happening again. So at Thanksgiving weekend, I went mostly cash and sat for a while and watched as the NFT markets dropped, the crypto markets dropped, and then I started buying back in. I want to do it from the context of what I'm buying so that it's less philosophical and more determined strategy. So when I look at like P2E, which is play to earn, which means you own NFTs that can be played in a game where you can earn income. 
I look at the long-term vision of the game. So one that I will say, there's a platform called Gala Games. And what they've done is they build an ecosystem of games that you can move in between. And that it has an economy that's shared amongst all of them. And it all revolves around the Gala token. Now you might have an in-game token, but it's exchangeable directly for Gala. And that you can participate in those economies, those ecosystems, the land, the rentals, the business building. So in three to five years in the P2E space, what we're going to see is that the games and the projects that win are the ones that are either multidimensional ecosystems or are part of a multidimensional ecosystem. Right now, the NFT market is completely oversaturated with land. There's more land plots than there are people participating in this space. So buying the wrong one could really go the wrong way. But if you buy one that's part of an ecosystem that has multiple games, so let's say there's 10 games in that ecosystem, one or two of them has to survive for the whole project to survive. And then you can add new ones. If everything is siloed into a single project, if any part of that fails, if the game's not fun, if the tokenomics aren't right, if they don't market right, if they don't manage their money right, you as the investor or the participant in that project lose. So I want an expanded ecosystem that gives the project more leg to survive over time. And that's the NFT, play to earn, metaverse side of things. I could go into the DAOs, the DeFi, Macro Web 3 if you want me to, but on the NFT side, that's really three to five years, you're going to see less macro ecosystems and more cross-chain, cross-function, cross-integrated ecosystems. And those that adopt that now or have it as part of their roadmap will win. Those that don't, 98% of them will fail. It feels like even though this whole world is about decentralization, we're really going back to a centralized model where there's going to be a couple of key players and you're going to have to work within their metaverses, right? And their ecosystems if you want to be successful. Is that kind of where you see it going? A big part of it is there's often conversations about whether or not that is a fundamental truth or if it's just because we're so indoctrinated into what success models look like that maybe the vision for success that's different than that. Look at the internet. For 10 years, everybody was fighting over scraps, trying to figure out what we're going to do, how we're going to make money. I sold my first website in 1997. So I've been there since the beginning of the economic models of it. And then we ended up with the big players. After the dot-com burst, the ones that survived became the Amazons or the ones that were born later or the, the macro social media platforms. We're all kind of forced to play inside of their ecosystems now. Right. Web3 still offers an opportunity for a higher level of independence from those centralized organizations. So maybe Sandbox becomes one of those, let's say that there's going to be a big five in Web3, but I as an individual can still own my land, monetize my land, rent my land, build a business on my land, and then I can come in and out of that. And I can sell those assets in an open market without any regulatory limitations by the marketplace itself. That would be slight. Web3, it would be less centralization and more of what we envision Web3 to be. But I also think at a macro level, someone is going to come up with that fully decentralized concept that everyone's going to, or the majority of people are going to embrace. And they're going to find a way to not let the big players 
ruin it for everyone like often happens. I don't know what that's going to be yet. Roger, this has been absolutely fascinating. If people want to discover more about you, where do you want to send them? And if you have a favorite social channel you want to send them to, where do you want to send them? Yeah, if you go to Twitter, you can search for bookner.eth, E-T-H. That's the best way to connect with me, follow me, participate in Coffee with the Nerd. If you are a project that is VC-backed, you can always go to results.io. I would love to chat on a project level. Honestly, just hit me up on Twitter. And we'll go from there. You can also join our Discord server, message me on Twitter, and I'll give you the link. And just there's so many ways to engage in this ecosystem that it can be overwhelming at times. I do need to mention everybody hates Discord, including me, that just follow me on Twitter, connect with me, send me a message. My DMs are open on Twitter. I respond to almost all of them. I say almost because if it's obviously spam, I'm not going to waste my time. But I'm an open book, even on webinars. I put my cell phone number up so you can text me. I just love talking to people because that next big idea, that next project might just be getting its legs and needs one piece of guidance or advice to change our entire ecosystem. And I would love to be part of that. Roger Bryan, spelled B-R-Y-A-N for those that want to Google search Roger. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights with us. I know it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for having me. I always love these conversations. And I hope that those of you that are watching, you look me up and we have more conversations just like this because that's why I'm here. I just, I love doing this. I'm one of those truly blessed that gets to wake up every day excited about sitting in front of a computer and talking to people about the future of our economy, of ownership, of decentralized finance. It's just so much fun. If you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash C18. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a longtime listener, let your friends know about this show. I'm at Stelzner on Instagram. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Crypto Business Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day. And may Web 3.0 continue to change your world. The Crypto Business Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Want more good stuff? Sign up for our top-notch social marketing newsletter. We deliver it straight into your inbox three days a week. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates. The information provided in the Crypto Business Podcast is provided solely for educational purposes. Do not treat what you hear as investment, trading, or financial advice. Do your own research.